0: Father, we're thankful for your lordship. We're thankful that uh, in every messy, windy storm that you are constant. You are sure you're steadfast. Lord, in so many ways, you're all the things that we aren't. So we lean on you and we praise you for who you are. Lord, we're thankful today. We express gratitude for your gift of uh, the worship team, uh, for everyone that's up here today, for everyone that... uh, serves uh, on a regular basis for, for guys like Matt, for the children's team downstairs. Lord, we're just thankful for what you're doing in our midst. We're thankful for people who have uh, been set apart by you uh, to love and to serve in these ways. So help us, uh, through their efforts, fix our eyes on you. Help us be transformed because of our gathering today. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. You just can grab a seat. Uh, today... Um, We're going to be kicking off uh, in a new series. Last week we wrapped up our time in the book of Acts, which was a a wonderful time together uh, to, um, yeah, I think, see a church that was motivated and on fire and following the Holy Spirit so that it could grow and flourish. And and today we're going to be diving into the book of Colossians um, for the next Lots of weeks. I, don't know, I think 12 weeks. Uh, Book of Colossians. This is going to take us all the way to Christmas. Um, so I want to set our time out just with a, a quick overview that will help kind of define for us the rest of our time together in the Book of Colossians. So Colossians, written by, like a good chunk of the New Testament, by Paul, who we have, uh, we're have no stranger to at this point. We've seen uh, the life and times of Paul of Tarsus. Um, written to the church in Colossae, which is, uh, again, It's not super relevant for our discussion these next 12 weeks, but if you're thinking like modern day, where am I placing this? Think like Turkey area. Um, And this wasn't a church that he had founded or that he had even visited. He did lots of church planning during his time, but this is just a church uh, that he knew about and wanted to write and encourage and help do some course correction for. Which is encouraging? It's encouraging. A lot of times we can look at Paul, and he's this. We talked about this in Acts twenty-eight. He's this hero of the faith, and he did so much. But God was working outside of the ministry of Paul. Like there's a guy named Epaphras that Jenny read about that uh, he was the faithful person to like help start and plant this church. And so stuff was happening outside the context of Paul. So that means for you. We're getting into it already. That means for you, you can see people who are just like heroes of the faith doing big things. You don't have to be a Billy Graham, though. God's working outside of the, the heroes he's using, everybody. So, uh, written to address a couple certain issues, which brings me to why I wanted to land on Colossians in this next season of our church's life, okay? Uh, Colossians is broken into two fairly distinct, um, fairly distinct divisions. And uh, the chapters and the verses are not original in the text. Um, But it's super helpful that whoever included them in there just just split it down the middle. So Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2 have everything to do with defining like a really good uh, Christology, a really good theology of who Jesus is. So it answers the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, this is a really, really important question for us to answer. If you're new to this kind of context, or if you're not too new, I don't know if you've noticed, but we sing some songs, and a lot of them are about Jesus. So it's really important for us to have a really good grasp on who is Jesus. So we're, we're going to, during the first six weeks, we're going to build out this Christology of who Jesus is us, and, and I'm going to be frank with you, because we have the whole Bible to discover who Christ is. The Old Testament talks about Jesus. The New Testament talks all about Jesus. Uh, but we're just zooming into one spot, and so it's not going to be complete, but we're going to look at who Jesus is in the context of the church of Colossae. Okay? So who is Jesus? Uh, and then the second half, chapters three and four, talk all about who is Jesus, and then well, how then should we live? What should our lives uh, look like? And what we're going to find as we define who the person of Jesus is and not just not just define who he was in the sense of Jesus was a Middle Eastern man born in 1 AD. He had olive-colored skin. He spoke Aramaic. Uh, he was kind. He was, but like, who is Jesus on a bigger level? Like, cosmologically, in accordance with the entirety of all of creation, and God in his plan, who is Jesus. And then chapters 3 and 4 are all going to be all about, since Jesus is that person, how are our lives different? Since Jesus is today, we're going to talk about how Jesus is our rescuer. And because Jesus is our rescuer, how then, chapters 3 and 4, how are our lives supposed to be shaped and molded? And how should they be different than someone who is not actively pursuing and following Jesus? And I think what we're going to find... Uh, and this is the phrase that came up to me over and over again. There's a lot of phrases you could use to define uh, the book of Colossians. But as I prayed about it and as I as we read through, I got together with a, a team of people, um, Tiffany and Ardoni, Jordan, uh, Nathan was there, um, uh, who am I missing, Katrina was there, uh, and just said like, what, what's, what's God stirring up in our midst because of this? And one of the phrases that I kept coming back to, because, because this is who Jesus is and because he touches every single area of our lives, here's the phrase that I kept coming coming up with this reality that Colossians is all about, how Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. And that might seem uh, overly broad. But as we look at the last, three, uh, last two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, what I find is that there is not a facet of our lives that is not touched by the reality of Jesus' grandness and goodness. Jesus changes everything. And then one more thing that's important as we dive into uh, the book of Colossians. <clears throat> There's two distinct, so chapters 1 and 2 are all about who's Jesus. Chapters 3 and 4 are all about uh, how he changes us. And it was written, why, why was the book written? Uh, the book was written to, to confront from Paul um, a couple of pervading issues or theological beliefs that had risen up in the church of Colossae. And, and really, they're not far from each other because the end goal of both of these beliefs are to know and be at peace with God. So you can't, you can't fault them too much because they're like they're trying their best to get to the same end goal that we are. But Paul was course correcting to say you're going about it in the wrong way. Which for us is a good note. You can do the right things in the wrong way and still have them be. The wrong things. So here's what he's addressing. There was a group of people in in the Church of Colossae that was uh, really promoting this philosophical, cerebral, let me think through it. And then there was another layer to it where it was like mystical. So this It sounds like a weird mix, but this philosophical, cerebral, mystical grouping of people who are going, we can know and experience God through thinking with our brains and through having right thought and through these mystical, Holy Spirit-inspired experiences. We can know God through uh, all of these things coming to life in by our experiences, the things we walk through, the, the ways that we feel Him impress stuff on us. And we can, this is how we know God. Now, again, I think there's an element of that both the desire to know God, and I don't think we should write off uh, encounters of the Holy Spirit by any means. I don't think we should write off things that we can't explain by any means, but Paul's saying, no, uh, the way you know God is through Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <clears throat> so there's a group that's saying mystical experiences, uh, right philosophy, all of this stuff. And then there's this other group that's saying, no, no, no. Your morality is what defines you as a Jesus follower. The way that you live, if you can just white-knuckle obey, just for everything, just strain out and say, I'm going to obey God no matter what, and that's going to be the definition of whether or not I can know God or God accepts me. And Paul's writing to say, oh. No. You've missed it. You've missed what grace is. Grace is a free gift. You don't earn it. And so there's these two groups. There's the uh, philosophical, mystical group, and there's the, the white-knuckle morality, legalism group that says if you are following God, you have to do all of these things. <coughs> and Paul's saying, I want to show you a better way, and, and here's the better way. The better way is that Jesus changes everything. He comes into those areas of your life. He, he blows them up. He, he, uh, he, he meets you in that area, and he's far, far better than the ways that you're trying to, to, to follow. <coughs> mystical supernatural experiences are not the pathway to God, that being perfect and doing the right thing all the time are not the pathway to God, but Jesus is the pathway to God. So Jenny read in Colossians 1, Uh and I wanna we're gonna bounce around, but I wanna focus in our attention to (coughs) verses excuse me, uh verses thirteen and fourteen. That's where we're gonna camp out for the majority of our time today. And, And here's what it says. Uh it starts with four, which is a little bit tough because uh we need to we need to Uh, bounce back a little bit, but we're going to do that at the end. So because of the things he said above there, which we're going to come back to, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So week one, who is Jesus? Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is our rescuer. And I think for our modern ears, I think sometimes language like this, both for people who are outside of the church and people who have camped here their entire lives, I think that language of rescuing is a little bit dramatic in our minds. Like, We're, we're, we're pretty individualistic people. We're pretty like self-sufficient people. And we tend to come to stuff like that and go, I don't know that I necessarily needed rescue. My life is independent of someone else's and I don't need to uh, have someone come in and scoop me up out of anything. I've got my life under control. I don't need help. I don't need anything of that nature. And, uh, to assume that assumes, or to say that assumes a couple things. Here's the here's the two things I want to talk about this morning. It says Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and if we balk at that a little bit, here's what it's assuming. It assumes that we don't think that we need saving. To balk at, uh, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness to go, eh, I don't know about me. That assumes that you don't need saving. And then the other thing that I think it assumes is that we are the center of human history. That human history revolves around and rises and falls on the 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years that we and I think both of these things are profoundly untrue. Um, so let's, let's look at the first one first, the, the, the lie that uh, Jesus rescued us and we go, I, from what? I didn't need saving. And I think uh, if that's our response, that shows a fundamental misunderstanding, which is fine, a misunderstanding of what the good news of God's kingdom is and what the good news of the gospel is. So, in your imaginations right now, which some of our imaginations in this room are better than others, but in our imaginations, I want you to picture a scene with me. What's the perfect pool or, or swimming weather? Like, we, are we looking for like ninety degrees? Is it? Do we want it to be hotter? Is that too hot? What are, what are? 80, 50, okay. Ninety with a light breeze. With light breeze. <laughs> it's no, so it's ninety with a light breeze out. And uh, you're at your your pool in Cabo, and uh, and the kids are cared for in this moment. And now I want you, we've seen a lot of them go viral, but I want you to imagine your pool float of choice, okay? It could be an avocado, it could be a popsicle, it could be a giant flip-flop, it could be a pool noodle. I'm not going to tell you how to enjoy your time in the pool. Now you are kicked back. You're relaxing, cold beverage of choice, Pepsi, Coke, I don't care what it is, in your hand, and you are just living life and it's good. You're starting to doze off a little bit, <nostalgic> and you hear the wet tick, 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 of footsteps. It's not your kids. Because almost immediately after you hear the wet tick, 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 of footsteps, uh, you hear a whistle blow, and, and you open your eyes to see a lifeguard off the edge already in midair, flying directly towards you. And you go, "Oh no! Did I go over someone? Did like is someone underneath me?" And then you realize that this lifeguard is jumping directly for you. This lifeguard lands on top of you and knocks you into the water. You're no longer dry and covered in tanning oil. You're all wet and you're confused because you were like half asleep. And, and, and the lifeguard scoops you up and gets you out of the pool and throws you on to, to the, the, the pool deck. And you're like, what are you doing? I didn't need saving. I was good. Things were fine. I think that's how we think about the reality of Jesus entering into human history with flesh and bone. That that he entered and, and sure, you rescued us, you saved us, but from what we were, we were kind of fine on our own. But what if instead the picture was this? We were uh, end of July on family vacation with uh, my whole crew, all the, all the chapels, and we were in Branson, uh, Branson, Missouri. And at the house we were staying, there was a, a, a complex of houses, and at the house we were staying, there's a pool, at, uh, and it was uh, like a community pool, so everyone was hanging out there together. So one night we were there, and Hudson, we had gone swimming in a river that we could touch in, and so he was like real big into taking his puddle jumper off. And he was uh, a man, a lifeguard in, in high school. And so he was like, oh, I'm doing swim lessons. And he was all in to swim lessons. And so we go to the pool, and he was all into doing swim lessons. And uh, so he was like, we, It's hard to learn to swim with giant puddle jumper on. And so uh, we took it off. There was an area of the pool that he could touch, and he was doing great, and he was so proud of himself, and he was excited, and his cousins were there. So he was playing catch with his cousins in the shallow end of the pool. He's like, do I have to put it on? And I was like, no, just stay down here with me, and, and you won't have to put it back on. And, and next thing you know, <coughs> uh, I, I look over, and I see Hudson at the top of the water slide. Now, uh, the water slide went down into what, I, what the pool said was the five-foot water. Uh, but I'm six foot, and it was like, here on me, uh, Hudson is far shorter than me. Don't know if you've ever met the kid, but he's like, he's headbutting me all the time when he's running up to me. <coughs> now, Hudson had been down the water slide multitude of times through the week. he just always done it with his puddle jumpers on. Uh, and so he goes down, uh, when he does it, he goes down the slide, which goes, goes in, and then he's got a float here, floats here, and it just Springs him up to the top of the pool, piece of cake. And so I see Hudson, and I'm on the other side of the pool at the shallow end where he's supposed to be. And uh, all of a sudden I see him go, and do the the swing down the, and I'm like, this kid can't swim. He does what is what is he thinking? And so like probably in my brain I set it up like Baywatch, like I'm a hero and like David Hasselhoff running. Probably looked far more like a a very pale whale trying to (laughs) navigate itself through water, but I made it. But I had made it after he had gone under. Now we're talking like two seconds. Uh, (laughs) But I I scoop him up and and I hold him. I go, Hudson, you're you're. I wasn't even. I wasn't mad. And I was like, Hudson, you're not wearing your uh, floats. And he goes, Oh, I guess you're right. <laughs> Glad we realized this at the same time. Uh, and, and I scoop him up. Now think with me, if we can, if I can divulge this a little bit. Think with me, if I'm not there, that in that story ends in tragedy. That Hudson being his three foot self, uh, all of 50 pounds, trying to th- swim and thrash and get above water. He might be able to do it for a certain, uh, period of time, but there's a certain, uh, point where he just can't anymore. And if I were not there to rescue him, if someone were not there to rescue him, tragedy. I think a situation like this is far more akin to the human experience than the first one. See, we assume the world revolves around us. We assume that we got everything under control. And it's really, really, really hard for us in America. We have things, hear me out, too good. If I did not have Jesus, it would probably not be difficult for me to keep my family fed. It would probably not be difficult for me uh, to keep shelter it would probably not be difficult for me to stay in good standing with society. There's a lot of things that we could muster up for the human experience because of the privilege of where we live. And so when we hear language like he has rescued us, we go, sure, but I probably had things on my own. But what does it say he rescued us from? Verse 13, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. The dominion of darkness gives this language, this empirical language, like the kingdom of darkness. He rescued us from the dark side, uh, for all of you uh, Star Wars nerds out there. He rescued us from something that in its totality was all-consuming. And what was all-consuming? It was the darkness. It was the darkness. Now, Scripture's really clear throughout the arc of Scripture that uh, there's, there's, there's good and there's bad. There's good and there's evil. There's love and there's uh, uh, hate. There's all of these things. There's constantly there's these like, two camps, and it's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, or the kingdom of the Son in whom he loves. And so uh, Scripture's also really clear that because we have sin in our lives, because we are sinful people, because we've disobeyed and dishonored God, because we said to the one that created us, we'll do things our own way. I think I'm good on my own. Because of that, there is separation between us and God. And because of that, we belong to the kingdom of darkness. We belong to the kingdom of darkness. Scripture is also really clear that the wages of sin is death. That because we uh, sin and are sinful, we deserve death. If I have someone come work for me as an employee, they earn a wage and I pay them that wage because they earned it. But because we earned, uh, because we sinned, the earnings for that sin is death. So this is not the reality of being rescued from like the good team to, to the bad, or from the bad team to the good team. This isn't the reality of being rescued from like uh, un- immoral to, to moral. This is being rescued from death to life. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. All of humanity Every single person that has ever lived or will ever live needs this rescuing. It doesn't isolate on you, but you're also not immune to it. That he's rescued us. But here's what I love. To go back to the pool analogy. It would be one thing for Jesus to scoop us up and to rescue us and just leave us there on the pool deck. Like, that's, that's where verse 13 starts out. He, he's rescued us. He's picked us up. He set us there and he's just walked off. But it goes on to say, here's what Paul says. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So not only has he rescued us from the penalty and the punishment of sin. Not only has he rescued us from the power and the control that sin had on our lives, but he has scooped us up and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loved, which is far better than we could ever imagine. Our lives, uh, don't, they do a complete 180. And in that son, here's what we find. It says we have, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Redemption meaning we have, uh, we've been released from the effect uh, and the payment that the ransom had. So like, again, wages of sin is death. And Jesus, because of his death on the cross, releases us of owing that payment. But he doesn't just release us and then hold it against us forever. Like, hey, you remember that time? I scooped you out of the muck and mire, set your feet upon the rock. Remember that time you were dead in your trespasses and sins and I brought you back to life. Remember that time you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but I'm so rich in mercy. No, he's far better than that. He says he redeems us. He cancels the the penalty and then he says he forgives us our sins, meaning he does not hold those things against us anymore. Now, there is no reason for him to do this. There is no reason for him to cancel the penalty of sin against us and then forget about it. Except for the fact that it is who he is in his very nature. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So he scoops us out out of the death that we were dying. He brings us into the kingdom of the son he loves, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of goodness. He, he redeems us. And then he says, forget about all that stuff. I've taken care of it at the cross. And you now have full access to me. You have all of the authority and the rights of, of, of next of kin. Like you are an heir. You're a co-heir with Christ. You get all of these things. Which then begins to stir in me like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Like this news is too good. This has got to be a catch somewhere. And here's what Paul says. He says it in the verses prior, verses 9 uh, 9 through 12. Excuse me. (coughs) Uh, he talks about he's praying for him, and he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, and we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So here's what started our conversation that introduced the four at the beginning of the, uh, verse 13 that we read at the beginning. So... Uh, Here's what it looks like to live a life worthy of that saving. Now, I, I want to be careful. Because you begin to say, here, live a life worthy of that saving. There's, there's nothing we could do to earn that. There's not. But there is an appropriate way to respond. So here's what it looks like to live a life worthy of Him, pleasing Him in every way. We're bearing fruit in every good work. We're growing in the knowledge of God. We're being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that we might have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. He says, uh, in verse 13 uh, and 14, he says, Remember, Church of Colossae, and I'm saying to you today, Remember, Connection Church, you have been rescued. Jesus has rescued you. So what do we do in light of that new rescued, redeemed, delivered, forgiven status? Here's what Paul says. He says we're living a worthy life, not out of shame or obligation, but he talks about the end. We're doing it out of joy and gratitude. That's how transforming Jesus' love is. That we don't have to earn our salvation. He gives it to us freely. And then there's no expectation of like, now you ought to feel like this. But instead we get to respond with joy and grateful hearts because of what God has done for us. And what's that worthy life? We're bearing fruit in every good work. It means the good news of Jesus has so radically transformed our lives that we can't help but let that good news bubble up and overflow from us, bearing fruit in every good work. We're growing the knowledge of God because when someone has delivered us from death, there is an innate desire for us to draw closer to him. So we're growing in the knowledge of God. Being transformed in how we see Him, how we experience Him. We're leaning into who He is. He says we're being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that we can have great endurance and patience. So we're relying on God's power so that we can endure whatever comes our way. And we're giving joyful thanks to the Father. We're becoming a people of grateful hearts where the thing that bubbles up out of us is just gratitude, saying, Jesus, we're just thankful. We're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for what you've done. We're thankful for what you've given us. We don't deserve any of it, and you give it to us anyways. This is too good. If we could grab hold of this, church, <coughs> that we are a people who have been rescued that Jesus has rescued us. I just, I just imagine the transforming power that we'd experience through this. What I see happening a lot of times, and I talk to a lot of people, and it's people like me, people that grew up in the church, people that that had faithful families to to be faithful and disciple them, and it's really I'm grateful for that for that blessing, but it's really easy for people like me uh, to go like. Oh, I'm here we're good. we're good God. I've never like done anything bad. I mean once got I've gotten one speeding ticket in my life i uh i don't really I don't really fight people. I'd lose anyways um, I come to church pretty much every Sunday. I I enjoy what happens in this space. Don't know if you know this, but I read the Bible every week. In fact, every week pretty much I get up in front of people and talk about the Bible. I must be a pretty decent person. And Paul's reminding the people in Colossians who are trying to bootstrap morality and trying to seek these experiences going, you have been rescued. Your life, because of the sin in it, was destined for death. And Jesus has scooped you up from the throes of death, released you of the penalty of sin, released you from the power of sin, and set you into the kingdom of the Son you love. And this is where your life is heading because of it. Jesus has rescued us. And so our lives, because Jesus has rescued us, ought to look different. Jesus, we are grateful. We're grateful that you have rescued us. We're grateful that while we were still sinners, in the moment that we didn't deserve it, we're grateful that we've gotten to experience uh, your power at work in our lives. Father, forgive us of the ways that we assume that we don't need your rescuing. Forgive us of the ways that we've just tried to live our lives on our own accord. And Lord, we ask for that rescuing power to be alive and active and working inside of our lives. That will be a transformed people who bear fruit in good works, who seek you, who seek the knowledge of you, who seek growing to understand you more, who seek to follow you better, who, who are grateful people filled with joy. But once again, we return to the fact that we can't do any of this on our own accord, so we're asking that you'll do it in us. Lord, we praise you for being our rescuer, and we ask that that rescuing power will transform everything for us. Be with us now as we sing these songs in worship of you. ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. So if you're able, we're going to close out uh, in proclaiming the the truths of God corporately. So I invite you to stand and uh, we'll sing together.